So, since April, our church has been going through the book of Acts. Many of the small groups, our church meets on Sundays for worship, and then during the week, um, we meet in homes based on where we live. We gather together geographically in smaller groups. And many of our small groups have been going through the book of Acts, and in, on Sundays, we've been going through it. And over the last four months, we've seen that the center of Christianity is Jesus Christ, that Jesus was a Jewish man who lived in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. And he was a Jewish man, but he was more. He was God himself in the flesh. God himself became a human. That's who Jesus is. And he didn't become just any human, just a generic human. He became a Jew. The one and only God, the creator, Yahweh. He had been at work in the life of Israel from the very beginning. In fact, God made Israel into a nation. He rescued Israel from slavery to Egypt. He gave Israel life and freedom and laws. And he revealed himself to Israel. And out of all the nations on the earth... There's one God, there's only one God, and this God chose to reveal himself to the world by wedding himself to the nation, the people of Israel. And then God himself, that God, took on flesh as an Israelite, as a Jew, and this is Jesus. And when we read the book of Acts... We see the early Christians, we see that the church, it's this group of people who believe what I've just said. And they not only believe that as fact, they believe that as the center of all things. And and they, they go around telling people this message. And first they start out with Jews because the very first Christians are Jews. The very first Christians are are fellow Jews with Jesus that recognize Jesus is truly human, but he's more than human. It's God himself in the flesh. Those very first Christians, we've been seeing in the last several weeks, persecution starts happening. And so they push out from Jerusalem where Christianity is centered at the beginning. And as they go out from there, they tell this story. And the first people they tell it to are fellow Jews. Because when they're being persecuted and they're running for their lives and they go to villages and towns outside of Jerusalem, they connect with cousins and relatives that will protect them and hide them. And, and, you know, this is quite a natural thing, right? Why are you running for your life? Oh, let me tell you. And then they tell them the story of Jesus. And then other Jews, and and it's it's sort of like um, if you could look at a map that maybe had some ink dropped on it, it just spreads out across that area of the world. And what do they tell them? What is the message that the early Christian Jews, the early Jewish Christians, tell their fellow Jews? It's this. Jesus is everything we have ever longed for. All of our nation's hopes, everything we've ever wanted, Jesus fulfills it. And then something strange happens. 
several chapters into the book of Acts, suddenly these Jews make a shift. And they not only tell their Jewish relatives and friends, they start to tell non-Jews, people who are not Jews, people who worship other gods, people who in the Roman Empire worship any number of the Roman gods. They begin to tell them But they say it differently. They don't tell them the story of Israel. They do this fascinating thing. They tell their non-Jewish neighbors that Jesus is not only a Jew that satisfies all the longings of the Jews. They start to make an astonishing claim. They start to tell Romans and Greeks And people from Africa, from Ethiopia, from Syria, from modern-day Turkey, they start to tell these people, Jesus is everything you've ever hoped for. All of your desires, all of your problems, every deep longing you have, Jesus fulfills it. Now, This is what's happening in the book of Acts. There's this this verse that Emily read to us at the beginning of Acts chapter 15. Let me find my place. This idea that salvation comes through Jesus, not only for Jews, but for all people. And they said to the Jews, the way you get that is by putting your faith in Jesus. But they said the same thing to Gentiles. They said the way you get your story fulfilled, your longings met, your hungers satisfied, is you put your faith in Jesus. Now let's stop there for just a minute. Because this is rather astonishing. Right? This is the kind of thing that Christians in a church can say glibly and quickly and move on. But what if I were to stand up at freshman orientation at JMU and I were to say, all of the longings of your heart, everything you've ever hungered for, everything you're searching for, you will get it. And the only way you can really get it is to put total faith and loyalty Into Jesus Christ. Now those of us in this room who are Christians. We need to sometimes remember. How audacious that is. How arrogant it sounds. How exclusivistic it sounds. How intolerant it sounds. This idea that God has named one path. To salvation. To having our sins forgiven. But this is the heart of Christianity. Now, we can disagree with it. You can say, I don't think that's true. But what we can't do with integrity is say that Christianity doesn't say that. We can't hide from that. We can't do some sort of postmodern interpretive judo on Christianity and make it say something else. This is the claim of Christianity. Now, so I I want to ask you, are you a Christian? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus? Are you 
loyal to him? And have you forsaken all others out of loyalty to him? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you accepted that Jesus is God? Have you accepted that God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead? Do you recognize that God is healing the world through Jesus? Have you responded to the story of Jesus with faith and love and absolute loyalty? If not, then... Not to put you on the spot. You don't have to. Please don't answer out loud. That'd be quite awkward. This is just a preacher question. It's not meant to be answered. But if not, why not? I mean, just think for a minute. What are you longing for? And what I'm saying is that all of the longings of your heart, that picture on the front of our worship guide, wouldn't that be lovely? That babies didn't fall into zoo pens where there were gorillas? Wouldn't it just be lovely that that required no death? Wouldn't it be lovely to live in a world where floods aren't destroying Baton Rouge? And policemen aren't killing black men? And citizens aren't responding by killing policemen. Don't you want to live in a world where that's no more? Last night on our street, they set up, they diverted traffic down Franklin to stop people and to check them for I don't know what. Don't, I want to live in a world where at 10 o'clock at night, my street's not lit up with flashing cop uh, lights. Do you long for freedom, for justice, for beauty? Do you want a voice and a vote that will count? Do you want health and love? What are you hungry for? What, what is it that you really long for that no amount of money, that fine houses and fast cars and luxurious vacations and love affairs will, will not reach? And what I'm saying to you is that Jesus is your hunger. He's your sub-hunger, your basement hunger. He's the thing inside of you that drives all of your hungers. It's Jesus that all of your hungers are pointing to. And and I don't mean to come across glibly. I don't mean to, to act like some magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Say, what do you want? Oh, Jesus, you know, with little bunny ears. I don't mean that Jesus is what we hunger for in some glib and artificial way. No, I, merely, I really mean this. I, I mean truly that deep down we are all hungry. And it's the creator who made us hungry. And he made us hungry for himself. And he meets that hunger through Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says that Jesus is the bread of life. That the thing you really need and really want is Jesus. And this is the story they tell through the book of Acts. Now, we see in the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 15 this dynamic playing out over several years. Remember the story I've sketched. Jesus became a Jew. Jews, a lot of Jews accepted him as the bread of life. The thing that satisfies all hungers. And then they started telling their Jewish friends and a bunch of Jews. Okay? And then they started telling non-Jews. And all of a the sudden, there were churches 
all over Palestine, Syria, Asia, Pamphylia, modern-day Turkey, all over there were these churches and there were people worshiping God and some of them were Jews and some of them weren't. And the Jews only ate kosher and they dressed in a certain way and they insisted that all of their sons were circumcised. And, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they didn't dress like that and they, they loved crawfish because they were righteous. And um, they knew how to fry catfish, and they weren't offended by tattoos, and they didn't mind shaving their sideburns, and they didn't all look like Zeke, you know? So suddenly, a fight breaks out. Look what it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, all these Christians, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So all of a sudden, there's getting, you know, it's one thing when there's a few non-Jews come into the room, they'll catch up. But suddenly, these churches are sort of like half and half. And some of the Jews stand up and say, hey, this started with us. Like, we're the founders of this thing. God's been working with us for a long time. We're so glad that you finally turned to the truth. Now keep turning. And, and you not only, to, to be a part of what God's doing in this world, you not only have to have faith in Jesus. Now get this, be very careful here. You not only have to have faith in Jesus, you also have to become a Jew. Some... Th- th- look, those of you who've heard about this for a long time, there's a great confusion in the church today. They were not saying you have to earn your salvation. They were not saying that you have to be good enough to be a Christian. The Jews, they knew they couldn't be good enough. They had a sacrificial system. They knew that they were always messing up. What they were saying is not you have to get there through good works. The Jews knew good works didn't get you there. They weren't confused about that. The only people confused about that were medieval Catholics. The Jews weren't confused about that. What the Jews were saying was God has been on our team all along. You want to get in? You got to be on our team too. You got to start dressing like us and looking like us and eating like us. Not to earn God's favor, but because our family is the saved family. Come into our family. And all of a sudden, the church that's moving, moving, moving out stops. If you could graphically display the book of Acts, it would be like a a map on the wall and the church is moving out, moving out. And then when you hit chapter 15, it stops. No more forward movement. They stop because they're fighting. And they not only stop to have a fight, all of the missionaries that are moving out travel all the way back to the epicenter to carry on the fight, to fight even more. Now, what is it that is so important about this fight that's worth stopping the forward movement of Christianity? What I want to say to you is that in Acts chapter 15... The early church is learning to tell the difference between differences that make a difference and differences that don't. And suddenly, in Acts chapter 15, a church that has experienced lots of differences, they suddenly hit a particular difference 
that they know makes a difference. You could write that over chapter 15 in your Bible. The church has come into contact with with something that matters enough. It's worth stopping everything else for and duking it out. Now look, that's, don't, don't think that that's terrible. You know there are things in life that are worth dealing with. There are things in life that are worth drawing a line and saying, we're not going to, you know, if a bad person comes into your home with a gun to kill you, you don't say, let me finish breakfast, right? It's worth stopping breakfast in that moment to deal with the issue, right? You, you, this is not, don't, there's no way in which this is illogical or absurd. The church has said, this is one of the differences that makes a difference. Now, how do we do that today? How do we know today when truth is more important than unity? How do we know when the desire to get along is less important than drawing a line in the sand and to determine who we're going to get along with? When is it appropriate to say, if we can't agree on this, you're not one of us. You've left us. When is it good and right to say, you know what? We can disagree on this. We can agree to disagree. This is what Acts chapter 15 teaches us. Go back to verse 1. There are these people that are coming down. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. These people who are insisting that you not only have to love Jesus, you also have to become a Jew in order to be saved. And the church, after a long fight, they say, no, that's wrong. That's one of the things that we can't disagree on. In fact, we can only have unity based on that standard. If we're not united around that, it's a false unity. If we have a unity but we disagree on that, we don't have unity. We've just pushed something under the rug. This thing is the center of unity. All unity requires a center. What's the center going to be? It can't be tolerance because tolerance fails. Because if you make tolerance the center of unity, you're going to violate your core principle when you're intolerant of the intolerant. Tolerance is not, it is not sufficient to form the center. It'll fold back on itself. So Christianity says the center has to be Jesus Christ. That Jesus alone, faith in him alone, loyalty to him alone, love in him alone is is non-negotiable. And if you disagree on that, I'm sorry, but we're broken with each other. And that's sad, but that's the truest thing to do. You see, the church was unwilling to compromise on that. Look at verse 11. We believe that we will be saved Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Nothing else. Faith in Jesus, the grace of Jesus. The center of Christianity is that the one and only true God, the creator, is healing the world through Jesus. And your only path to satisfy the hungers of your heart 
is faith in him. Now, the funny thing is, none of us are arguing about this. I've never seen this argument break out today. I've never met somebody that says, you know what, Aubrey, you got to stop eating catfish. You know, you know what, Aubrey, if you can't become full-on Jew, you can't really be a Christian. This is a debate that's passed. It's no longer happening. But we are facing lots of things where we have to figure out if the center holds. The center of Christianity is Jesus Christ, faith in him alone. And a church that gets, that gets fuzzy on this has left Christianity. They've broken the faith. They violated the unity. We have to be willing to draw a line. You see, it is not a matter of unity at any cost. There are differences that make a difference. But there's more going on in the book of Acts in chapter 15 than this. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment. It's funny, isn't it? I, this language of judgment. We, we have to be willing to do this sometimes. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim the Jewish way of life. He's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, basically what's being said here is that the non-Jews... While they don't have to become Jews to become Christians in order to find forgiveness, they do have to love Jews. They do have to be kind to them. Remember, we're talking about a moment in history right at the beginning that's very different than what we're going through today. We're talking about churches that are filled with practicing Jews and pagans and Stoics and Epicureans Lots of religions, lots of ways of life that have converted. And they're all trying to figure out how to get along together. And the Jews, they got some pretty tough... I mean, the Jews, you invite, you know, let's say Zeke and his family are Jewish. We say, come on over and we serve them pork. And what does he do in that moment? I mean, can you imagine how deeply food laws, dressing laws, all of... Can you imagine how deeply, if you're really different, this can affect the way you experience one another's hospitality. In all of these cities where the churches was growing, were growing, there were ancient Jewish communities. And so these non-Jews, they're being told, you don't have to become a Jew, but you do have to love Jews. And a fundamental thing about love, love refuses to offend when it doesn't have to. A fundamental thing about love is that love is not rude. Rudeness is when wearing a ball cap inside a church building doesn't at all bother me and it doesn't matter. But grandma's in the church building, and it bothers her. And the fact that it doesn't matter means take your dang hat off because it doesn't matter. The Bible says love is not rude, and this is the essence of what it's getting to. What the Bible is saying here is that out of love, don't do the things, non-Jews, that really tick off the Jews because you love your neighbor. 
It's one thing to preserve the gospel from corruption. It's another thing to have the wisdom to preserve the church from division on unnecessary issues. In other words, what we see in Acts chapter 15 is that the church has to be willing to have division over central issues. We've got to be willing to pass judgment, that word is used, and to say, you're wrong. Cut it out. But we also have to have the wisdom to get off of our high and mighty horse on non-essential issues and love each other. And to say, if this is deeply offensive to you, then I'm not going to push it in your face. The church must courageously refuse to compromise the truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, we must courageously resist using our freedom in the face of others. My wife has a tattoo. There's nothing sinful about tattoos, nothing wrong with it. My father, for years and years, was deeply offended by tattoos. So every time my wife was around my father, her tattoo's on her ankle, she would make sure her tattoo was covered out of love. My wife was right. My father was wrong. There is no sin in tattoo. But the first commandment is to love God, and the second is to love your neighbor. And so for my wife to unnecessarily offend my father, she would be breaking the second greatest law in the name of freedom. Now, society has moved past that moment. This was a long time ago when tattoos were still kind of controversial. Those who are offended by tattoos, you're just going to have to suck it up today because it's so pervasive And I'm not saying that my good friend Byron, who's here from Baton Rouge, who's a pastor, just got a tattoo two weeks ago. Um, And his church may or may not know yet, but I wouldn't out, he's sitting back there, I wouldn't out him like publicly on that. (laughs) We fight for the truth when it comes to the center. We must be willing to use words like judgment, and you're wrong. But we work hard to lovingly accept one another when it comes to differences that don't make a difference. Now, I'm not saying that all of the issues in verse 29, look look at Acts chapter 15, verse 29. I have to do kind of a Shakespearean aside here for a second. Uh, You must abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from these, you'll do well. Farewell. I'm not saying that all four of those items listed there, food sacrificed to idols, blood, things that have been strangled, and sexual immorality, not all of those are non-essential. Sexual immorality is at the center of Christianity. It's in the center. And we have to be willing to say that. Now, I wish we had time to do that, talk about that, because it's very complicated. And it's very difficult to not only know that, but then to know what that means. It's hard to live that out in our day and age. And 
And I can't talk about, I wish that I had time this morning to reason with you about why sex, what you do with your body in the sex, why that matters to the center. I wish I had time to reason with you because it's worth it. And if you want to talk about it, please, I would love for us to talk about it. Um, but my sermon time is nearly up. And so that I've, pre- I've, I've talked a lot about that. And I, I've done e- long lectures on that and had lots of discussions. So I'm not going to move on beyond that now because I'm scared of it or ashamed of it. But just because I'm trying to do the overview of chapter 15. And that's a supporting issue that matters greatly. So if you want to talk about it, please let me know, and I'm happy to have a calm and reasonable discussion. But for this morning, let's just go back to this whole issue of unity and diversity. When it comes to non-essentials, division is childish. And that's what's happening in chapter 15. And it is a strong lesson we need to learn today. The church in the West is profoundly wrong on this issue. Our divisions are a terrible mark on the reputation of Christ. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And there are whole Christian denominations still fighting A 500-year-old fight that's over. I'm an Anglican. I love being an Anglican. Being Anglican is a great way to be a Christian. It is not the only way. Catholic is a great way to be a Christian. Baptist is a great way of being a Christian. In fact, our church started... With Ernie Dito, who grew up Presbyterian, Katrina, who grew up Mennonite, Ed Good, who grew up Mennonite, Esther, who grew up Methodist, Aaron and Paula, who grew up Baptist, my wife, who grew up Catholic, Fran, who grew up Episcopalian, some other lifelong Catholics, myself. You know, our church started not by a group of people who grew up certain ways and were looking for the truth, who were leaving their traditions, Look, we, in the, we have got, our churches in Harrisonburg have got to change our posture to each other. And we've got to begin to approach each other from a, a posture of reception. Our church is better because Baptists and Presbyterians and Mennonites and Methodists have cross-pollinated. One month in, an entire house church joined our church. Not because we had something to teach them and not because they were trying to change us. But together we became something greater than the sum of our parts. And that has marked our... Do you know that part of the deep emphasis of our church on meeting in homes all through the week? One month in, an entire home church, house church joined us. Look... This is not the only way to do church. A lot of you college students, if if you've been to church before, maybe you've never worshipped in this way. And maybe the way you worshipped was wonderful growing up. And you know what? If you grew up Baptist like me, there are enormous treasures in the Baptist tradition. There are things I am so grateful for. I wouldn't rewrite my history. And the Mennonites in this room, there are treasures in the Mennonite tradition. 
And the, the, what I love about incarnation is that we wear our Anglicanism, but we wear it lightly. Look, the, the kingdom of God is a river, and you got to get in a canoe. And the canoe of this church is Anglicanism. There is no non-canoe canoe, right? Even if you're non-denominational, you're definitely a type of non-denominational. You got the, we used to be charismatics, but now we're charismatic, non-denominational. Then you got the Bible church, non-denominational. You know, it, it's a very specific, it's definitely a Protestant non-denominational. Or it's best, definitely a Catholic-ish. There's no, no, there's no way to not have distinctives. But we wear them lightly. We hold the sinner like iron. And we love softly and gently putting the other above ourselves. And this is the great lesson of Acts chapter 15. And the church in the West has got to stop acting like its own particular tradition is God's gift to the world. And that if the world, the world will get right when everybody becomes Anglican or everybody becomes Mennonite or everybody becomes Presbyterian. The Anglican history proves that wrong. The Mennonite history proves that wrong. Presbyterian history proves that wrong. We've all proven that experiment wrong in our traditions. So what I love about being a church like this is that you can come into this church as a Presbyterian and bring the riches. Now, you can't change the canoe. You can't change us from being Anglican. We're still going to be Anglican. And you can be a Presbyterian on our Anglican canoe if you want to. And we'll laugh at you on the reasons you're wrong. And you'll laugh at me. My mom says, Aubrey, how can you baptize full-grown adults in that baptistry back there? And my response is, Mom, it's babies. We just push them right down. (laughs) I laugh. She kind of laughs. Jesus prayed to the Father and said, God, grant the church unity. The Father will answer his prayer. Because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the Father will not give His Son a snake when He's asked for one loaf. Let's be on the right side of history. Let's have the courage to know that the way it looks today, it will not always look like this. And so let's be Anglican and bring the gifts of Anglicanism to the world. And let's have receptive postures to the Mennonites and the Presbyterians and the Baptists. And let's try to improve the reputation of Christ in this town by the way we relate to others. And let's not be afraid to hold the center like iron, but to love and be free outside of that. And hey, if you're not a Christian, wouldn't you want some of this? Don't you want the peaceable kingdom? Don't you want to be in on a healed world? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. Please stand.